This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Pletka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell is going on? Well, Danny, we're about a month away from the midterm elections, and we're having an interesting race. We've got uh, the historical average is that in an off-year election, uh, the president's party has lost, on average, since 1934, 28 House seats and four Senate seats. And this is not an average election. Joe Biden is, if you look at the 538 polling average, he is the most unpopular president in the history of presidential polling going all the way back to Harry Truman and pre- and presidential approval is historically the number one indicator for how a party is going to do. We've got a series of crises in this country that are almost unprecedented in their confluence uh, between record inflation, record gas prices. And as rec- we speak, a two million barrel per day OPEC cut. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Right when it's designed to bite. That was intentional. <laughs> I feel that. I feel that is correct. I think so. I mean, we've got a record crime wave in American cities, worst border crisis in American history. Um, I mean, war just, in Ukraine. War in Ukraine. China misbehaving. Yeah. North Korea. Korea firing off missiles. Um, This should be an historic red wave. I don't think it's going to be quite as historic as it should be. Because Uh, because Donald J. Trump. Exactly. (laughs) Who, Who is desperately trying to lose the Republican Party, the Senate. For the second time in a row. So let's let's the good news first because we don't want <laughs> yes. we don't we don't we don't want to lose our listeners. We don't want to lose our listeners who like Donald J. Trump. As most listeners know, I'm not saying this out of a deep hostility for Donald J. Trump. I think I've bent over backwards to be very fair to the president and call out his accomplishments in office, January sixth, uh, and all the rest. Of, I know, and I've also <laughs> called him out for January sixth and all the rest of it. I tried to call balls and strikes with Don, Donald J. Trump. This uh, is a series of. And balls, if I, I may mean, say so. But boy, oh boy! You know, the the first of all, Republicans are going to win the House of Representatives. It's a question of by how much, and that alone is the good news. Is that alone is enough to stop the Democrats from doing any more of these rec- budget reconciliation bills with Democrats only? So the the spending spigot will be shut off if that happens. The Senate is another story. And we've got a series of races where in Ohio, in New Hampshire, in Pennsylvania, though our guest argues that Pennsylvania is a little bit different, but in Georgia, uh, in Arizona, in races where the Republicans should be winning and they are uh, either behind or in these very tight races that it should be a walk in the park. It should be a walk in the park. And the reason is because President Trump entered into the fray and threw his weight behind weak candidates who are in danger of losing. And it's entirely possible that for the second election in a row, because Donald Trump cost us the Senate with his election, his lies about the 2020 election, which led people to not hundreds of thousands of people to not vote in the Georgia runoff, um, Republicans, uh, giving the giving the Senate to Democrats and resulting in this trillions and trillions of dollars of spending just, that just, wouldn't just, happen. Right. But, but stop about for to one happen sec. again. Stop for one sec. Yesterday. And, and this did not get the sort of 
you know, Queen Elizabeth has died epic quality of coverage for reasons that are completely mysterious to me. Yesterday, news news agencies reported that America's national debt has now surpassed $31 trillion. That's a bipartisan accomplishment. It is absolutely a bipartisan <laughs> accomplishment, but I got to say the last few years have been insanity. Yeah. And the fact that and of course, you're completely right. Republicans have been extraordinarily loose with money. Uh, Donald Trump was extraordinarily loose with money. So this is a shame on both those houses but for sure. But a particular sure. shame on Democrats with the you know when Barack Obama was elected and he proposed an eight hundred billion dollar fiscal stimulus, people thought that was insanity. And like now, if you don't have a T next to your spending bill for the Democrats, they don't even take it seriously. They think it's a uh, weak. I mean, the the trillions of dollars and how many more trillions had it not been for two senators, Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin, who Joe Manchin unfortunately gave in and, and gave them another half a trillion dollars with this in the unaptly named Inflation Reduction Act. But it would have been even more. It would have been, you know, six right. trillion. dollars. So with these kinds of stakes. Okay, with these stakes, with that litany that we started out with at the beginning, the environment for the Republican Party should be utterly and completely golden. Opportunities to right these Never wrongs. Never had a better political environment to and run yet, in. And yet, and yet, because, and yet, because of these craptastic candidates, people about whom I find it very hard to use polite language in some instances, they are going to not take seats... But it's not just well, that might. the republic. Wait, but it's not just the Republicans won't win. Okay, because that happens every day of the week. But it's not just that. It is that people who don't deserve to remain in office will remain in office, and a danger to everything this country stands for in certain places. It is staggering. I don't count Maggie Hassan as a terrible danger, but I mean Raphael Warnock. You know, a guy who is, you know, apart from anything else, has has vilified Jews. If the Republican Party isn't good enough to beat these guys because they put up morons, idiots, crooks and liars, it, you know, they deserve it. OK, so here, here here's uh, the, the <laughs> okay, caution so Mark, that's that. enough bad stuff. No, no, that's fine. But I mean, here's the reality. I think the red wave is probably going to be. It could very well not a well tsunami, carry, but good. But well, but it could carry some of these weak candidates over the top, and it's also possible that some of the polls are wrong in these races. So, in Ron Johnson is pulled out like a two a two point lead in Wisconsin. That but, guy's the luckiest it, man in politics, Ron Johnson. I mean, he is pulled out of the hat twice in a row now. Well, but that's the point. In 2016, going on election day, the RCP average had him trailing by 2.7, and he won by 3.4. So they were off by six points. Uh, so a lot of these polls could be wrong. That's number one. Number two, the good news is if Democrats somehow manage to hold on to the Senate in 2022, the field's even more tilted toward Republicans in 2024. In, in, in 2024, Democrats will be defending 23 seats, at least nine of which are in competitive states, while Republicans will be defending just 10 seats. None of those seats are in states that Biden won. In 2020, and only one, Florida, is in a state that Trump won by less than. So Republicans don't lose hope, even if you lose now because of Donald Trump in 2024. He can't possibly screw it up for you. Yeah, but I mean, he can. But (laughs) but you know, here's here's the point. We got you know, I I hope that we I hope the Republican. I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. I want to stop the spending. I want to have a check on on Joe Biden. So I hope the Republicans do take do take the Senate. But if they don't, they're probably going to take it in in, in uh, two years time 
And the, but the question becomes is, you know, we I think the Republican Party needs to do a little bit of introspection. If we don't have a red wave that at least comes close to matching the historical standard in the in this political environment. And if we don't take the Senate when we should have with, without question, uh, then, boy, we need to look in the mirror of this party and, and understand. And, and also, I, I think that put the responsibility where it's where it lies, which right. is with 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 the former president who picked these who picked these uh, to use your technical term, craptastic candidates, uh, some of these candidates. And then he has at the end of September, he had ninety two million dollars in the bank in the Save America pack. You know how much he spent on these races? Almost nothing. He spent like $6 million, I think $6.4 million. Most of that was legal fees. Most of the, re- the rest of it was staging, his staging company that he uses for his rallies. And then $170,000 to defeat Liz Cheney. But other than that, almost no spending on any of these candidates. When so he gives us the weak candidates enough? and when then is he doesn't it gonna spend be any enough? money. And then he goes to our guest today, Carl Rove, and says, well, you save the party and, and go spend money on, you know, $35 million in Ohio to save J.D. Vance, uh, you know. To the, save the likes of J.D. Vance save the likes is of the way JD we Vance, ought to be which, putting it. So anyway, I hope, you know, in some of these races, you know, like we t- we're going to talk a little bit about the Herschel Walker race coming up. You know, I, I hope that a lot of Republican voters, especially in Georgia, where the 2020 runoff is what gave the Democrats the Senate. Like, you know, burn me once, shame on you. Burn me twice, shame on me. I hope that a lot of Republican voters are voting. If they can't bring themselves to vote for Herschel Walker, the person, that they're voting for a Republican Senate that's going to be a check on the excesses of the Biden administration. Well, from your mouth to everybody's ears is all I can say on that. That's why we have a podcast. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wow, good thinking. I always wonder. <laughs> Let's bring in somebody who knows this stuff inside out. And we're very lucky to have one of the nicest people we know and also one of the smartest people we know. So Carl Rove, who has been our guest uh, on this podcast before and a wonderful guest. We're super lucky to get him uh, when he is one of the most popular guys around, is a columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He is the co-founder with the former RNC Ed Gillespie of American Crossroads, which is a Republican 527 he is the author of The Triumph of William McKinley, Why the Election of 1896 Still Matters. And he's just a mensch. I'm so happy he was with us today. And the last guy to be able to help a Republican president win a second term. The architect of that great victory, Carl Rove. Here's our interview. Carl, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, good to be back. We're looking for you to look into your crystal ball. So we've got... The worst inflation in 40 years, the worst collapse in real wages in four decades, worst crime wave since the 1990s, worst border crisis in American history. Joe Biden is the least popular president in the history of presidential polling, going all the way back to Harry Truman. We're going to have a big red wave. <laughs> uh, well, we're going to have a we're going to have a, a red wave, but but it, in part you pass over one important thing, particularly when it comes to the House of Representatives, and that is that we got a head start on the red wave in 2020. We lose the White House, but we pick up 14 seats in the House and find ourselves at 213, and the Democrats at 222. So a, a shift of five seats gives us a House. The average since 1934 is 28 seats. My gut tells me because of the head start and because we have a few knucklehead candidates, uh, we're going to likely be in the 20 to 25, which is going to be more than adequate. I mean, we get 20. On the, which is on the low end, I think, then we are at 200 and 
33, which is three more than we had when Newt Gingrich was sworn in as the first Republican speaker in 40 years in January of 1995. So I'm thrilled to have you here because I have I have dozens of questions and I'm going to have to control myself. <laughs> no, really, no, no, we no. like it when you lose control. We like it when you, when you when we see the real the, the real, real you. Idea, that's that's yes. what we like. Yeah, the real Danny. Yeah, unfortunately, Mark has yep. to sit next to the real Danny, and he's shaking his. <laughs> well, that's why I like that. That's why I like it. That's why. That's why I and other viewers and listeners like it because because we know that it's it's causing Mark some indigestion there as you <laughs> grab control of the mic and head off. <laughs> well, I owe silver away. Okay, uh, exactly. All right, so hi ho, silver away. All Let right, you the Lone Ranger or silver? <laughs> Now that was really hey, dark. hey, hey, Tonto, Tonto. <laughs> okay, Kimo, settle Go down. Ask you're, your sti- question. you're still Tonto, Mark. Uh, so the Senate. What about the Senate? Yeah, well, the Senate. This is again why this is such an interesting election. As you know, we only elect a third of the Senate each time. Class one, class two, class three. This is the so-called class three. And the challenge for the Republicans is that there are 21 of them up. And only 14 Democrats. Now, granted, a bunch of the Republicans are in places like, you know, Oklahoma. So they don't have Stan Utah, where they don't have, you know, where the Republican Party's label is very strong. But still, it divides the resources up. And we're also, this is a, a weird anomaly, because if you look at it, the Republican seats that are up this time around include two seats, one open in Pennsylvania and one in Wisconsin that were in states that Joe Biden won. And none of the Democratic seats up this year, the 14, are in states that Trump won. And in the recent couple of decades, what you know, who won your state in the last presidential election has become important. So this is a challenging election for the for the Republicans in the Senate because they've got to defend open seat in Pennsylvania. They've got to defend an incumbent in in uh, in Wisconsin. They also have seats in uh, states where that were narrowly divided. Uh, North uh, North Carolina and Florida. I feel pretty good. I feel very good about Florida. I feel pretty good about North Carolina. Uh, but they, they, there's no Democrat in a Trump state. So in order to beat you know the Democrats and take the Senate, they're going to have to win in states that Joe Biden won. And the good news is there are a couple of states, Nevada, under 2.5%, 2.4%, Arizona, Georgia, where less than a percentage point. And we have, in a midterm, a swing. And uh, if you look at the last four midterm elections, uh, in 2018, there was no swing. Uh, In the two previous to that, 14 and 10, there was a seven-point swing. Uh, And in uh, the the election before that, 2006, there was a two-point swing. So you average it all together, and and granted, four, 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 four instances is not a huge set. But it's about a 4% swing. So if the Republicans get a 2.5% swing, they win Nevada, they, they win Georgia, and they could win Arizona. Now, that, that's independent of candidate quality, which is a big, you know, a big consideration. And, and, in, and, and, the, and you see that in, in the polling data. Adam Laxalt is our best shot for a pickup, even though this was a state that was won by Biden by about 2.3-something percent. In the last, there have been six polls in September. He leads in five and is tied in one. That's a pretty good run. Uh, but the, 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 the challenge for the Republicans is at the end of the day, they got a hold in a couple of states that, that Joe Biden won, albeit narrowly, uh, just over a point in 
in uh, Pennsylvania and under uh, just about a third of a point, I believe it was, in Wisconsin. Um, and, and I'm feeling good about both of those races, incidentally. So my gut tells me at the end of the day, you know, you got 50-50 Senate, you got 51-49, Republican 51-49. Damn, I think it ends up being 51-49 R. But it may not be decided, and this is the crummy part, until December 6th because Georgia has this requirement that uh, you have to get 50% of the vote. There are three candidates, the libertarians in the race, and it could, and the race has been, you know, within the margin of error for months, one way or the other, Walker up a point or two or down a point or two, um, Warnock up a point or two or down a point or two. And uh, as a result, it's going to be a, a wild ride in the remaining uh, four and a half weeks. I was about to say, here we go again. Uh, let, let's talk of some of these individual races in the Senate because uh, and, and I want to I want to get to uh, Walker in a minute, but let's talk about Ohio. So Rob Portman won that Senate seat by 20 points. Mike DeWine, who's on the ballot, is up by 17.4 on the RCP average. And J.D. Vance is basically statistically tied. What's going on there? Well, first of all, highly contentious Republican primary. He was endorsed by Trump. Won the primary with, you know, um, I think 30, 30 some odd, maybe not even 30 percent of the vote. I can't, but it was damn close. And let's be honest, he, he may turn into be an exemplary senator, but he's he's not a particularly good candidate. Uh, in full disclosure, I'm, I'm a volunteer advisor to a group that I helped form uh, with Ed Gillespie 12 years ago, American Crossroads Senate Leadership Fund. Uh, Vance is going to win because this is a state Trump won. Uh, Ohio by a bigger margin than he won uh, Texas. The Republicans, as you say, are cruising to re-election in the governor's race in the statewide contest. They're likely to pick up a congressional seat or two. And uh, and the American Crossroads Senate Leadership Fund is spending $35 million in the state of Ohio to help ad- advance J.D. Vance. But isn't that so a problem? <laughs> I mean, yeah. well, spending somewhere else, not in the state of Ohio, yeah. you could win by 20 points. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, don't don't get me talking about it because I'm not a happy camper about it. But but we, we you know, it's a, and it, it's a solvable problem. But the solving the problem, it means the application of large sums of money. And and, uh, you know, uh, he was endorsed by Trump, but has yet to have any uh, financial backing from the Trump super PAC. And uh, and it's not a particularly effective fundraiser. And, and so got to got to spend the money. But uh uh, it is a sign of, you know, you'd like to have that money playing someplace else on the board, like, you know, Colorado or uh, Washington State or, you know, New Hampshire or, uh, you know, just, you know, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, the ones that were close, but uh, we're having to having to spend money there. You know, one question on J.D. Vance. So he, you know, he obviously has become virulently anti-Ukraine. You, and as you know, uh, Ohio has one of the largest Ukrainian-American populations in the country. They vote Republican. There's a reason why Rob yep. Portman is the co-chairman of the of the Senate Ukraine Caucus. I mean, how much is that hurting him? You know, if he if he if in a tight race, he got you know fifty thousand Ukrainian Republican voters who don't like. Him. Oh no no no! You're wrong. You're wrong. There are eighty thousand Ukrainian-Americans in the Cleveland area alone. Wow. Yeah. No. In fact. Let's. Uh, I'm going to be full disclosure here. You may have missed his attack on uh, Tucker Carlson the night after he won the primary on a slimeball establishment Republicans that needed to be uh, erased from the party, and that, that 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 he named one person specifically, me. <laughs> now, one of the points that he made that night was that he complained that I'd written a lot about him uh, in my Wall Street Journal column. Actually, I wrote two sentences about him. One sentence was the exact quote that he made about he didn't care about Ukraine. 
And the next sentence uh, I drew from news reports that his campaign staff was trying to clean up a remark because of the 80,000 Ukrainian Americans in the Cleveland area. And he took offense by my drawing attention to it. But but it is what it is. And I, I do worry about this strain in our party and in this, uh, you know, sort of the conservative uh, com- commentary community uh, about Ukraine and the idea that this has no, no implications. The, the, the outcome of this contest has no implications for the interests of the United States and the security of the United States. They're kidding themselves. And um, it is vital for anyone who cares uh, in a prosperous, secure, and free world in which America's influence for the good is felt and where uh, we have uh, allies and friends in Europe, not, uh, you know, not a, not a, a Soviet or Russian-dominated Europe, we ought to care about what happens in Ukraine. The, the whole idea that a, a rogue regime can sort of decide uh, which part of its neighbors it wants to digest uh, is uh, anathema to our interests and our security. Amen. Amen to that. Good for you. Thank you for saying it. We, You know how much we agree with you. All right. So let's talk about some of these other places, though, Bulldog in, in uh, New Hampshire, uh, Blake Masters in Arizona, Herschel Walker, who I think you think has a pretty good shot, Dr. Oz. All of these guys have, and, and of course, the aforementioned J.D. Vance, all of these guys have one thing in common. Right? They've been endorsed by Donald Trump. He hasn't given them any money, as you say, although I think he splashed out, you know, a couple bucks for somebody in the last week or so, if I'm not mistaken. What what does this say? How does Trump remain popular at the same time that he is backing candidates who, you know, who can't get elected dog catcher? Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, let me let me dissent on one candidate that was on your laundry list. Uh, Mehmet Oz was endorsed by Trump. But he has shown, uh, you know, he has shown that he's more of a traditional Republican in his campaign activity. And I think is a run, particularly in the last, uh, you know, couple of months, a very good campaign and has closed this race, cut um, Fetterman's uh, lead significantly and has made this a uh, almost within the margin of error race and clearly has the momentum. And he has done so by, uh, you know, accentuating the extreme views of Fetterman. And becoming, you know, he's a, he is a television figure, but he has become a more adroit, you know, hands-on campaigner. So I, 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 I find Moldock was not endorsed by Trump in the primary, though Trump said he said very strong things. Uh, but yes, he endorsed Vance, he endorsed uh, Oz, he endorsed uh, Blake Masters. And I, I see them as I see. I put Oz to the side, and I see the rest as a kind of disruptive candidate whom uh, Trump uh, likes to endorse. And my my sense is that he had reasons to stay out of Pennsylvania, and he had reasons to endorse uh, either of the leading candidates, Dave McCormick or Mehmet Oz. And then at the end of the day, he was in, he was encouraged by friends of his to endorse Oz. But I don't think this was the same as you know Blake Masters or J.D. Vance, or others who were very Trumpian in their orientation. I think this was more, um, you know, competing groups of friends and allies and family members who he ultimately decided he needed to make a decision and came down on behalf of Oz. But, um, I mean, yes, Oz is, look, Trump, Oz is, you know, we forget this because, because A, because he was associated with Trump, 
But I mean, it was Oprah Winfrey who brought us Mahmoud Oz in the first place. This is a guy yeah. who graduated magna cum laude from Harvard University, got a degree, an MD and an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and the Wharton School. I mean, he's a he is actually not an idiot, notwithstanding some of his earlier missteps. So happy to hear you know what you say. What about the rest? And what about Trump? How does this? How do we get this bifurcation? Yeah, look, this is going to be. Uh, I, I, first of all, let's step back. I have no idea why the former president thought it was a great strategy to throw his endorsement out in highly contentious races and to conduct a you know you know year and a half long uh, process by which people came to you know kiss the kiss his robe and kneel beneath kneel below him and and uh, offer their you know obedience to him. I, I just it was not. It was humiliating for these candidates, and it also put the the, the former president in a uh, in a place that he shouldn't be. Think about this: he's endorsed candidates for the Secretary of State of Nevada and Arizona and Michigan, and the Attorney General in Michigan, all because they they basically deny the outcome of the 2020 election. He's endorsed people like J.R. Uh, um, Majeski in in. Uh, uh, Ohio congressional candidate whose only claim to fame was that he'd taken his gigantic front yard in a semi-rural part of uh, northwest uh, Ohio and turned it into a gigantic Trump display for the 2020 election. And now it turns out that he has lied not once but twice about his military service. And the NRCC has has taken down its million-dollar TV buy on his behalf. And And so I think at the end of the election, people are going to start toting this up and say, well, okay, I see where he endorsed a large number of Republican members of Congress who were in safe races, but that doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is that he intruded into the you know, Senate race in Arizona and made a big deal of Blake Masters, and he, he endorsed you know, the, the candidate of the election deniers who were running for Secretary of State in all these places, and we came up short. And you know, this, these, this governor's race, this, this important contest, this congressional race, this Senate race, um, Trump put a candidate whom we can now look in retrospect and say was subpar. And do we really want that leadership for the future? I think it's all part and parcel of a series of steps that he has taken that have the, uh, the adverse impact on him, where it's going to basically act as a corrosive on his hold in the Republican Party. Saw a poll the other day, 47%, I think it was, of Republicans want him to be the nominee. That's a good number, bigger than anybody else. But it's 20 points below where he was not too long ago. Well, here's a question. I don't want to get to 2024 yet, but but though we do want to ask you about that. Yeah, resist that, man. Do your best. If we don't win the Senate because of Trump candidates, and I hope I hope Republicans do win the Senate, but if they don't, that'll be the second election in a row that Trump has cost Republicans control of the Senate. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is he going to pay a price for that? Oh, sure. Sure. Look, look, we already know the things. We know some things. If, if, if the Republican Senate candidate in Arizona was Doug Ducey, we would, we, we would be on our way to a sweep in Arizona. A very popular governor. And why didn't he run? Because uh, Trump made it clear he would not endorse him. What, what about if Chris Sununu were our candidate in, uh, in New Hampshire? We'd, be, we'd all be, you know, that'd be in the bag. Uh, the, the Democrat, uh, Maggie Hassan, won by 1,000 votes last time around. The most popular political figure in the state is Chris Sununu. Why didn't he run? Well, because Trump wouldn't endorse him, and he thought about serving in how bad it would be to be serving in the Senate, even if he won. And, and heck, if Trump had said, you know what, 
I'm, I'm going to intrude into the race in New Hampshire and endorse uh, the guy that Sununu endorsed, uh, Senate President Chuck Morris. Uh, the polls were showing that Morris, even even before the primary, was in a neck and neck race with ha- Hassan. And and but but Trump couldn't do that because you know Chuck Chuck Morris was too close to Chris Sununu. So look, we've already seen the effect uh, of of this. And, and then look, the fact is. He intruded into the Ohio primary. It is the reason J.D. Vance won. And does anybody think that we would have been worse off with other more energetic candidates whose only uh, shortcoming was they didn't win the blessing of Donald J. Trump? I mean, uh, yes. The bottom line is he has made our life more complicated as Republicans in winning elections. And I think uh, ironically made his life more complicated by, by intruding. He endorsed J.D. Vance, and what happens? The, the Republican national delegates to the 2020 convention send him a letter saying, why did you do that? We're, we're, we're Trump supporters. Why did you, and we're supporting other candidates. Why did you intrude? Some of his strongest local party leaders in, in Ohio wrote an angry letter saying, you didn't consult us. We're, we're, your, we're the MAGA people, and you didn't even consider what our wishes might be, and we don't, we're supporting other candidates. So, why he did this is, is beyond me because there, there are you, you, an endorsement from a former president in a primary ought to be for big and important reasons. And he scattered them around the countryside uh, like they were, you know, Valentine's Day cards. Yeah, well, but I mean, of course, you know, we can pose that as a rhetorical question, but if we, we know the answer because it's all about him and you know as you na- described you know someone coming and kissing the hem of his robe and and sitting at his knee listening to pearls of wisdom so you know it's really pathetic for our country so quick question which one of the three of us having now opined on this is going to be the first recipient of of a loser Danny is a loser Keaton <laughs> is a loser Carl is a loser I mean which one of us is going to get the first you know sort of arrow sent our way. Oh, Mark's already been both embraced as a, as a brilliant strategist and excellent writer and as a loser. So he's, yeah. Yeah. I think you have too. I'm the outlier oh, yeah. here. So I'm waiting. <laughs> All right. Well, so, so in other words, uh, if, if uh, President Trump, if you're listening, do Danny a favor and send the first insult her direction so that she can feel, you know, your your warmth and affection. Exactly. That's what I'm looking for. Okay. Let me ask you a, a quick question that's just very newsy, but I think Mark and I are both wondering about this. So Herschel Walker has managed to get past the fact that he doesn't seem terribly knowledgeable about many things and the fact that he once pulled a gun on his wife. I actually hilariously was talking to a political consultant at some point, and I said he beat his wife, and he turned to me and he said, excuse me, he did not beat his wife. He pulled a gun on his wife. I was like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. But now the new revelations that he might have paid for an abortion for some woman. Uh, yeah. seem, and his son this, coming out against him. <laughs> even better. Is this going to hurt him? Well, yes. Uh, how much, we don't know. And, you know, we're, we're in one of these tribal moments. So for everybody who says, uh, you know, uh, my opponent or, the, or the, the guy I don't like is a bad person, and the guy that you like is a good person. Uh, you know, we, we're we so tribal that it's like it's it very little changes. The, the question is, how much of this enormous reservoir of goodwill that Herschel Walker has among people in Georgia uh, remains and how much it will be dented by uh, by this um, accusation? 
And how does he respond? I mean, I, I think, look, he, he, it's an interesting because in his book, he admits uh, that he suffered from uh, mental illness and that he made and made statements and did things that were wrong and that he regrets. And, and, but he somehow between his faith and a willingness to ask for help, he got help. And this is important to him. You read the book and he talks about it openly and candidly. And he talks about how important it is for others who are in need of help. I've heard him talk about, you know, um, veterans with PTS and families in crisis and young kids who've lost hope and how important it is that as a society, we encourage people like that to, to feel enough uh, self-worth that they can ask for help. And he says, he says rather candidly in his book that between his faith and mental health professionals, he, his life was turned around and he was given a second chance. And he wants others who face similar challenges in their lives to find the courage to, to, add, to ask for help. And that's admirable. I mean, I, I, my mother committed suicide. And I, I, you know, how many times have I thought about if she'd only been able to find it inside herself to say, I'm, I'm feeling very desperate and I need help. And so I, you know, that's, that's an admirable quality in it. And, and, and he being, you know, he's an excellent figure to, to speak out about these things because in the book, he's very candid about what he did uh, when he was in need of help. But voters are, you know, voters are, are tribal at this moment. I don't know how much effect it's going to have. I think it's going to have a negative effect and less than until he puts it in a broader frame, which is, you heard a lot of bad things about me. Some of them are true. Some of them are not. But, I, you know, I was in a bad place in my life, and I turned it around. I'm, and I did so by calling on my faith and the, the help of good people who uh, understood what I was going through and helped me find the therapy and medications to put my life in the right course. Well, that's very brave. I agree. But it raised in my mind the other question that I wanted to ask you about, which is this much reputed, <laughs> much talked about pink wave, because we're talking about Democrats seem to believe, Steny Hoyer did an interview um, uh, just a few days ago, uh, saying, I'm only looking at three things. One is the Dobbs decision. One was this vote in Kansas not to allow full ban on abortion. And was it a by-election in New York that uh, yeah. went well, let, let, Dems way? Yeah, let's take those in reverse order. The, by, the special election in New York occurred in a district that no longer exists. It was to fill a vacancy, uh, and uh, the new boundaries are enforced for the November election. But if you look at the boundaries of the, of the New York 19 as they existed on that day, there are 38,000 more enrolled Democrats than there are Republicans in the district. And on that day, virtually all of the 19th had primaries for the new district, for the new districts in that area for the U.S. Congress between Democrats, not Republicans. So, you know, it was held on primary election day, and there was, in, particularly in Ulster County, which is the biggest county in the district, Demo heavily Democrat county, that county was split, I believe, between two congressional districts. So, you know, you start with the territory where there are 38,000 more Democrats than Republicans. You layer on top of that two Democratic primaries, and are you surprised that the Democrat wins by 2,000 votes? <laughs> you know, it should have been more. Right. Uh, Kansas, I love this thing. Kansas, we you know look at this gigantic turnout uh, on on abortion, and uh, and this is a sign that the Democrats are going to win. Well, then why are there four hundred some odd thousand 
Republicans who vote on that day and 200 and some odd thousand Democrats who vote that day. What happened is, is that the measure was so extreme that a lot of suburban Republicans in Johnson County, west of Kansas City, uh, and in and in the other states' uh, centers, Topeka and Wichita, said, I can't go for the extreme measure. I want something in which there are a chance for exceptions and so forth. So I, th- this is an entirely misread. Now, is abortion an issue? Yes. But if you look at it, it's down there. If you say to people, uh, what are the important issues? Here's a big laundry list. You know, like I saw one poll where they had like, you know, 80, high 80 percent said cost of living inflation is, a, is, a, is, a, is an issue. And 50 some odd percent said abortion is an issue. If you say what is the most important issue, there's an interesting poll done on this. It was like 65 percent of the people in the poll said that either the economy, inflation or crime were the most important issue. Only 35 percent, 22 percent for abortion, 13 percent for climate said the most important issue was one of those two. So the Republican agenda, economy, inflation, crime. That gets about two-thirds of the voters say that's, that one of those issues is, is the most important issue. And, and just over a third say that abortion or climate is the most important issue. So Steny Hoyer can go out there and say this is all going to be about abortion. I, you remember, and Mark Udall was running for re-election, and, the Denver, and all he made the race about was he was for abortion, a woman's right to choose, and Cory Gardner was going to be an anti-abortion extremist. It got so bad that the Denver Post mocked Udall as Senator uh, as Senator Mark Uterus, and <laughs> yeah, and 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 they're making a mistake by doing this. Yeah. And and I, I saw it. Nancy Pelosi goes on Colbert the other night and says the Democrats are going to keep the House of Representatives, and the and the studio audience goes nuts. Well, it says something about the studio audience that Colbert gets. Since the creation of the second American party system, the creation, if you will, of of parties as we sort of understand them to be today, in 1818, there have been two first midterm elections in which the White House party has gained seats in the House of Representatives, 1934 and 2002. And this ain't George W. Bush after 9-11, and it ain't FDR bringing the country um, up, uh, up off its knees in a depression. This is Joe Biden who can barely put together two sentences and is asking where Jackie Orlorski is, uh, you know, a week or two after she's been put in the ground. I hear you. I hear you. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sitting backwards because that was such a, an awesome peroration. I really enjoyed it. So, so let me ask you a question on this, though, Carl, because so if, if abortion is this big winner for Democrats, then why in Georgia – is Brian Kemp, who signed a six-week abortion ban, leading by seven points in the RCP average and 11 points in the new Marist poll. In Ohio, Mike DeWine, who signed a heartbeat bill, which is basically a six-week abortion ban, he's leading by 17.4. In New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, who, who signed a 24-week abortion ban, is leading by 20. And But the Senate candidates are, are trailing, who have nothing to do with abortion, because the abortion was just sent back to the states. So why? Yeah. How does that show that abortion is uh, is helping Democrats? It, it, it well, the only argument you can make that says that it does is that we do have candidates uh, for the Senate, like Blake Masters, who say no exceptions, no abortion. And my my view on this issue is all people are looking for is amount is a certain amount of empathy and realism, because we're a conflicted nation on this issue. Two thirds of the American people did not want Roe v. Wade overturned. 
about the same number do not want abortions in the second trimester, and 80% in one poll don't want them in the third trimester. I mean, we're a country, you know, if, if the pro-life movement, if six months ago before Dobbs, you could say we're all going to have a law similar to Mississippi or, or France, you know, limiting abortions in the first 14 weeks and exceptions for rape and incest and life of the mother, you can have that. We would have, we would have gone for it in a nanosecond. But now that we have RV, Roe v. Wade overturned, then uh, it's, it's now suddenly a part of the pro-life movement is like, okay, well, we got that. So no, no abortions, no exceptions. And, and to, to the vast majority of people, including a lot of pro-life people, that's just a, a, a step too far. So the dread question. You said, let's not get there yet, but we're getting there because we got to let you go at some point pretty soon. What does this all mean? Is it actually going to be a boon to Joe Biden to have a Republican Congress because he'll have a, an enemy out there that he can talk against? Or you know, what do you think any of this means for 24? Well, look, I don't think it strengthens Joe Biden, um, no matter what the outcome is. Uh, people have already made up their minds. When you have I saw a poll of um, of Democrat one poll of Democrats. They said, "Do you want Joe Biden to be the nominee in 2024?" It was 24 percent, or, or twenty five. And, and in another poll, it was twenty six. Look, people have made up their minds. We're in a reoccurring moment in American history. Nineteen sixty, the president of the United States was Dwight D. Eisenhower. He turned out to be the last president born before World War One. The country said that is an admirable generation. That, that, that led us in World War II, but the, the, we now want to the, the men and women who whom they led, these two young 40-somethings who, uh, who served both in the Navy and both in the South Pacific, Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, we want to have a generational change. And we had the greatest generation, those who, who were born uh, during the, the 30s uh, and 20s, late 20s, who came to, to adulthood during World War II, fought for the salvation of civilization itself. And in 1960, we said, we're going to pick among those two. That generation served us well. Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, uh, Carter, Ford, uh, Reagan, George W. George H.W. Bush. But then in 1992, we had another generational change. They said, you know, thank you for your service. You saved the world. You built, rebuilt America. You made us the exemplar of the world that we are. It's time, though, to, for a newer generation. And we had the baby boomers. Well, we're now at a different stage. And the last baby boomer to be president is going to be Joe Biden. And, uh, and, and it's going to end in 2025, on January 20th, when he transfers power to his successor. And I think the country is going to be desirous of a new, younger generation of leadership more in tune with the future. And, um, you know, we're not going to be in a place where it's going to be Biden. So, Carl, I have two exit questions. First on what you're talking about with Biden. The reason why the Democrats chose Biden in 2020 is because he was the least worst choice, right? They're all their alternatives were from the left. And they looked at him and said, well, here's this genial moderate who can hide in the basement and promises to unite us. It's inoffensive to the moderate swing voters who are concerned about the left wing turn of the Democratic Party. And so he came in as sort of their Trojan horse. Right. And who's the alternative to do or to offer that? They spent the whole 2020 election trying to find somebody else 
to fill that role and they couldn't find anybody. I mean, yeah. they, they can't run Biden, but they can't run without him. Yeah. Well, I'm not certain of that because, you know, this is a process and we'll see candidates emerge. And I think somebody who is a more of a traditional Democrat is going to have a better chance of winning the Democratic nomination than somebody who's on the left. But I can't tell you who that's going to be. I mean, it's a big, long list of people who want to run, you know, starting in the West, Gavin Newsom, you know, Jared Polis, the governor of Colorado, Amy Klobuchar, uh, Whitmer, if she wins a big victory. Uh, a lot of the Clinton people are, are talking up Mitch Landrieu, the former lieutenant governor of, uh, of Louisiana and mayor of New Orleans, who's now the infrastructure chief. We got Mayor Mayor Buttigieg wants to run. Uh, Roy Cooper, the the uh, uh, moderately traditional Democrat of North Carolina, governor, head of the DGA, the Democratic Governors Association, he wants to run. I'm sure Cory Booker wants to run. Elizabeth Warren says she's running. I mean, I, there are going to be other names popping out there that we haven't heard from. Uh, and I think it's going to be a wide open process uh, on the Democratic side. And, and it could be on our side as well. But but I don't know. All I know is that I just feel that the country is – I run into too many people as I travel who just sort of shake their head and say, really, the best we can do is two – one guy who's 82 and one guy who's 78. Is that the best we can do? Our country faces, as you both know, huge challenges. And this is a demanding job. Uh, you know, Mark and I worked in the White House. We saw firsthand how much it demands of, of not just everybody in the White House, but particularly the president of the United States. And let's be honest. There gets to be a point at which we, you know, we're, we're, we're not up to that task. And an 82-year-old and a 78-year-old, I, I really worry about having the, the energy, the fortitude, the thoughtfulness, the capacity to handle this very difficult job in what is going to be a very difficult time. So last question uh, on the Republican side. So you pointed out that the number of Republicans who say they want Trump to run is, has dropped by 20 points. In Florida, there was a poll showing that Trump was beating DeSantis for a, for a, the Florida primary by seven points a few months ago. And now DeSantis is up by eight over Trump in a, in a hypothetical Florida primary. If Donald Trump decides to run, do you see a pathway for either DeSantis or anyone uh, to deny him the nomination? Or are we going to get the same phenomenon we had in 2016 where you have 20 Republicans dividing up the non-Trump vote and Trump escapes to the nomination with 35 percent in these primaries? History does repeat itself, but as somebody once said, as farce. Uh, I think that's a fun comment, but I don't think it's likely to happen this next time around. I think people will get in. I'm not certain if Trump does get in, but if Trump does get in, he's going to face a serious contest. And there are going to be a lot of people who treat him with kid gloves in a, in a way by saying, you know what, appreciate the many things that he did well, but we need to elect a president who can serve two terms. And, and we need to uh, uh, nominate somebody who can win. And the best way to win is to not make this race about the past, but to make it about the future. And um, you're right. Last time around, he won by uh, he won by uh, getting a plurality of because of the big field. Uh, I, I don't think the field's going to be that big. And, 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 and things do change. We have 85 members of the Texas House of Representatives. Every single one of them got a higher percentage of the vote in their district than did Donald Trump. And they know it. And that's the case. I, I happen to mention it at a gathering, and George Will said, is that true elsewhere? And come to find out, it's the same in places like Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia and Pennsylvania and Michigan. The top of the ticket was running behind the bottom of the ticket. And we're going to go through an election here in which the president's, um, the former president's endorsement power is going to be tested. 
in which people are going to make a judgment about is, is the pathway that he has shown us uh, for uh, for elections a winning pathway. And I, I you know, you're also got a lot of candidates who are out there polling, and they're finding out how how in in, in a deep red district he may be very popular, but in a swing state or a swing district, they're finding significant elements of both the Republican base and of the swing voter community, the independents, not being so excited about him. And I'm, what does that keep him from being the nominee? I don't know, but it makes it a much harder deal than it was uh, in, in 2015 and 2016. I mean, do they have to settle on some somebody to be the alternative to Trump? I mean, do are we going to have to see some selflessness among these Republicans to say this is oh, the yeah. year? We're yeah. going to have to have yeah. one guy go up against him? Or are we going to well, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's one guy or one gal, but I think there's going to be a ruthlessness among party leaders and and donors and activists to say uh, we, we we want a smaller field rather than a bigger field, and if and if you if you can't show us early on that you got what it takes, uh, get out and uh, don't complicate the picture because winning in 2024 is going to be so important, and there are going to be so many things that the Republicans and this is where I probably am been a little too hopeful. I think Republican members of the House and Senate are going to try and get things done. They may be stymied by uh, the rules of the Senate or the the opposition of the White House, but nonetheless, they're going to get, try and get constructive things done that will make America better and stronger. And um, it, it's going to raise the stakes among Republicans that, you know, we really do want to have these important reforms and restraining government spending and uh, overhaul of the bureaucracy and regulatory relief and strengthening of our military and so forth that are going to cause people to say, uh, you know what, we really we, we can't let this one get away. We really need to win. Yep. Let's make elections serious again. That would be a good <laughs> motto on which to end. It is always such a, a pleasure and an education to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time and for calling Monto. <laughs> Thank you, Kimo. Ohio Silver away. Hey, thanks again, Carl. You are wonderful. All right, thanks, Danny. So let's talk about 2024 because I think it is important. You know, Carl lays out the fact that perhaps there will be blowback not only from the mistakes made in this midterm, but also you know, in the Democratic Party, that there there needs to be a new generation and there needs to be fresh blood. There needs to be, a, you know, new set of offerings for both Republicans and Democrats. Do you think it's going to happen? Well, I think that it'd be very unlikely that Joe Biden will be the nominee because, you know, he obviously. So wait, wait, wait. Do you think he's going to get primary? Do you think so he's going to get forced is, out in a back so this room? This is the interesting thing that I mean, so there was a poll came out. Only 30 percent of Democrats would vote for him in a Democratic presidential primary. Um, so if this is a shellacking for the Democrats in uh, in November, I think there's there's no chance the party leaders are going to come to him and say you can't uh, you can't run other uh, that. If he does run, I think he would be challenged and probably challenged from the left. He's going to face a lot of pressures to stand down and step aside. The problem the Democrats have is why did Joe Biden get the nomination in the first place? Right. The reason he got the nomination in the first place is because they couldn't find anybody else who was electable. They had, what was it, 19 candidates and all the moderates, the, the centrists, the Klobuchars, the Tim Ryans, no one voted for them. They were they fell by the wayside. They never got into double digits. And eventually they came down to San, er, Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden. And people said, oh, my God, if we nominate Bernie Sanders, we'll, you know, uh, Trump will win in a landslide. 
And so they can, they decided to go with Joe Biden because he was a genial, inoffensive moderate uh, who Old could, man. who would not offend moderate swing voters. So who can fill that role if Joe Biden steps aside? It's not Bernie Sanders, not Gavin Newsom, not God, you know, not, not any Pete of that, that. Not Kamala Beto Harris, O'Rourke. not Kamala Harris, who is like you know dumb as a bucket of rocks and just said we're have an alliance with North Korea. Um, and and is less popular in the polls than Joe Biden is. So they, they their problem is they can't win with him. They can't win without him. Did you see that Saturday Night Live sketch, by oh, the no, way? Oh, yeah. Their season opener for uh, the, their news sketch. Let's sketch. play the clip. At a, at a White House event, President Biden asked if Representative Jackie Walorski was in the audience asking, where's Jackie? Apparently forgetting she died last month. Worse, worse, he keeps forgetting that this woman is still alive. And, and of course, the this woman that they picture is Kamala Harris. I, sometimes <laughs> well, I feel all, bad for her. The most amazing thing about that is that they actually made a joke at the expense of a Democrat on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, well, that's, that's, there, were, there were a lot of those. Uh, you, you know things are bad in the White House when Saturday Night Live is making fun of Democrats instead of Republicans. That's for sure, but... You know, I do think the big specter. So Joe Biden does not hang over 2024, I think, for for Democrats in the same way that Donald Trump looms over over 2024. And, you know, one of the things that that becomes absolutely manifest, not just after our conversation with with Carl, but if you're paying attention at all, is is that for Donald Trump, everything is about him. And so he is now, for example, going after DeSantis because DeSantis is more popular than he is. So does he does he simply come in as a spoiler, not because he wants the Republicans to win, but because he can? Well, I don't think he comes in as a spoiler if he thinks he's going to lose the election because Donald Trump doesn't want to. You know, you, he can make an excuse that he lo- that he had, it was stolen from him once. He's not going to make that excuse uh, excuse twice. And I think he's resentful of DeSantis because what what I've what I've seen in DeSantis. Uh, I think is probably the leading candidate to replace him is DeSantis is able to be just as much of a populist counterpuncher as Donald Trump. He he takes on the left. He takes on, you know, he sends the plane to Martha's Vineyard. He takes on Disney. He, he does all the things that that stir the hearts of the populist uh, Republicans. But he's also a very serious conservative reformer. He's got a lot of great education reforms and lots of other reforms, but he's able to flip the switch. You You compare, I did a column last week comparing DeSantis's hurricane briefings with Donald Trump's COVID briefings, where Donald Trump was incapable of restraining himself from getting into petty fights with reporters and having the you know stream of consciousness about bleach and all this other stuff. DeSantis has been the picture of a commander in chief in a time of crisis leading his state uh, to deal with with the real recovery efforts and, and, our, and a hurricane that's really battered his state. So he seems to have everything that Republicans like about Trump without all the negatives of the things so that they tolerate. So here's a question for you. If J.D. Vance wins in Ohio, is he going to try and get the mantle of the new Trump instead of Ron DeSantis? I do worry about that. Um, but I think that one of the problems J.D. Vance has is that he's really lazy. <laughs> <laughs> the Fred Thompson the, what, of the 21st century. What? Why? Although why, Fred you know, Thompson I mean, was a wonderful man. Why is he struggling? You know, in in Ohio, it's because he's not a very good candidate, um, and, and a made, terrible fundraiser, and a terrible fundraiser, and right. all the rest of it. So maybe that's not a problem. Um, there's going to be a lot of people seek, seeking the pick up the Trump mantle and take it onto the next election, and that's the only way that Trump wins <laughs> is if he can get you know again the same dynamic as 2016 
where you have a big divided Republican field that he can conquer. So I think Republicans are going to have to be very, very disciplined if Trump decides to run. Oh, yeah, that's going to happen. Oh, exactly. <laughs> but in, I mean, we're going to they're going to have to get behind somebody uh, because, I mean, you just look at take J.D. Vance's uh, primary. So J.D. Vance won that primary with 32 percent of the vote. He had about 15 percent of the vote going in. So Trump gave him, you know, another 15, 16, 17 percent. But 68 percent of Republicans in Ohio wanted somebody else than Trump's chosen candidate. That's the same scenario by which Trump won the nomination in 2016. So if 68 percent of Republicans want somebody else, but Trump can win with 35, 40 percent of the vote, uh, then it, you know, shame on the Republican Party if they can't coalesce against one uh, around one alternative to Donald Trump. Well, I hope it won't be shame on the Republican Party. It'd be nice to have two healthy political parties in America, wouldn't it? It would be. Yeah, you would think that the American people in the greatest country on earth might deserve that, but perhaps not. <laughs> Time will tell. <laughs> Folks, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, we've got another great podcast coming next week as well, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.